0: In the stillness of your presence, you can feel your own formless and timeless reality as the unmanifested life that animates your physical form. You can then feel the same life deep within every other human and every other creature. You look beyond the veil of form and separation. This is the realization of oneness. Well, these are the words of Eckhart Tolle, the man the New York Times once called the most popular spiritual author in the United States. But why is Tolle as popular as he is? One could point to the clear career boost he got from Oprah Winfrey a few years back, but there's actually more to it. In fact, this idea of oneness is increasingly tantalizing Americans and spiritual seekers across the world. We used to refer to this as the New Age movement, but now perhaps we have to say, as my next guest does, we have entered the age. Age of re-enchantment, the assembly of meaning and purpose within a matrix of wonder and mystery, all pointing to a paradigm of holism. This is our post-Christian context in which the God of this age is convincing more and more people that they just need to recognize their own oneness to be as God, to be masters of their own meaning and destiny, and to build heaven on earth. But Christians would do well to remind these folks how the Garden of Eden turned out, how the Tower of Babel turned out, and how human history will turn out with the Lord Jesus Christ, who will not share his glory with another, returning to save his bride and to judge this sinful world in righteousness. In the uh, the meantime, what is going on out there? And we're going to find out today with researcher Carl Teichrib, editor of Forcing Change, which documents the major social, religious, political, economic, and geostrategic trends that are impacting the West. His brand new book is called Game of Gods. Carl, long intro I recognize, but it's so good to welcome you back. How are you?
2: I'm doing great, Janet, it's great to be on your show again and talking about this really important subject.
0: Well, it certainly is. You and I have talked a lot over the years about your visits to places like Burning Man, these transformational festivals around the world. We talked recently about going to the Parliament of the World's Religion. So you've had a long period of time where you've been studying this whole game of gods. How would you describe what's going on? What would be your overall assessment of this age of reenchantment that is now upon us?
2: I think it can be boiled down to this. It's an alternative salvation message. And I think that might be hard for some people to wrap their heads around. But really, what's being offered to us is another road, an alternative path to salvation, a path of salvation made in our own hands. We're designing and and producing our own meaning, saying that this is what, what our destiny will be. It really is an alternative form of spirituality, and and with that, an alternative form of salvation. And and I think that's an important thing for us to to keep in mind as Christians. It's easy to point at, let's say, the idea of world government, which I bring about in the book, and interfaithism, even the Parliament of World Religions, which we talked about a while back. And we can point to all that and say, hey, you know, the world is, is changing, and... And we as Christians have a tendency to, to say, oh, you'll, you know, the world is becoming more evil go along those lines. And yes, we're seeing a lot of changes. But I think really what we have to do is recognize this is an alternative salvation message that is directly opposed to the salvation message of Jesus Christ.
0: Well, it is. You talk about the difference between oneness and otherness, and I think this is such a vital distinction for Christians to understand. How would you differentiate between the game of God's salvation message and the true salvation message of Jesus Christ?
2: Oh, wow. Yes, you know, the game of God's message is we are building it ourselves. We are are literally playing all kinds of games of God's. We We are making the declaration that we can be gods of our own life, uh, we elevate ourself. We we create a form of selfism. We then we do it collectively, and really, Janet, that's what reenchantment is about. It's about doing that collectively, <laughs> and not just collectively with each other, but collectively then with the planet, with the environment, with the cosmos, and also also we will do it collectively with the, the spiritual entities, those powers and principalities, as as Paul talks about. That really is. Uh, the the game of gods that is being played since Genesis chapter three, and the type of salvation we find in that is is we are going to construct this with our own hands, and basically it's creation worshiping itself. Whereas the biblical worldview is no, no, the creation can't fix itself. The problem can't fix itself. It has to come, it has to come from literally the author of life, yes. the one who defeated death the one who created all of us and then who brought himself into our world so that uh, he could defeat death and that there would be hope and hope eternal. And so the, the, the real distinction here, I mean, there's a lot of distinctions, but, but you know, the, you could say the fundamental distinction is one is a temporary system. One is the world system, one is man's system, and that is temporary. It's as temporary as, as the, the breath that we have and the other is is eternal the one who doesn't change, and the one who who gives life, right, and not just gives life, but demonstrated that he has power even over
0: death. Well, it's interesting. When you look back in history, I can remember when the New Age movement kind of exploded on the Christian scene in terms of attention, that all of a sudden we recognized, hey, there are a bunch of people who are into crystals and, you know, are doing weird things over in Denver, uh, kind of into the environmentalist stuff, and new world economics, and we're all going to come together as one, and home, and all these kinds of things. You don't hear too much about the new age movement per se anymore they don't call it that much anymore but is that still around just under a new name and is that really the essence of what's going on here because you also have other streams coming into play like hinduism you know and and how i think it was time or newsweek that had on its cover a number of years ago we're all hindus now and this idea that we're accepting you know karma and yoga and all this kind of stuff how do these things all fit together carl
2: Oh, yeah. You know, we have a spiritual smorgasbord laid out right before us, and, and, and the West, I would argue that the West is not moving towards secularism, because even secularists that I've, I've been talking to, rubbing shoulders with, they too are talking now and, and asking questions. Is there a form of spirituality that transcends even secularism? Is there some feeling we can all get, and is that is that really spiritual? But the New Age movement I I, I chart this in the book. The New Age movement itself really began to change around the year 2000. And I mean, in the 1980s and 90s, that's when the New Age just exploded. It really flourished. Uh, The the one thing that the New Age did, though, was it really emphasized the self, it really emphasized that idea of human potential and that we could become more than ourselves uh we are we are we have to recognize and discover and remember our divine selves and it became a very me-oriented it had that tendency to be a me-oriented movement and that type of an uh, of a me orientation or a self-orientation it really kind of started to change after the year 2000 and it more reflected the idea of we It's not just me anymore, it's you and I, it's our neighbors, it's the trees, it's the rabbits in the field, it's everything coming together as one and we all recognize our oneness. Now I mean, back in the 80s and 90s, the New Age was preaching the same thing, that idea of oneness. They also talked about the we, but after the year 2000, for some reason, at that point, there really seemed to be this emphasis within the American mindset and the Western mindset of a we orientation. We are doing this together. And that's really what separates, I think, this movement uh, from, from the, you know, kind of the more the, the New Age ideas of the 1980s and 90s. It really now moves toward the, the concept of, of we have a collective responsibility to the earth.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: We have a collective responsibility to each other. We have a collective responsibility to create heaven on earth. So there there is a nuance, there is a difference between the two. They've both always been kind of hand-in-hand, but now the emphasis is on the we, the collective, whereas back then the emphasis was more on me and what I could get out of it.
0: Well, that's an interesting distinction because we hear a lot of this collective ideal, as you call it in your book, uh, all around us. And I think of Romans chapter one, where uh, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, man begins to worship and serve the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. There's a lot more to talk about. Game of God's the name of the book. Carl Teichribb, my guest, and we'll come back on Janet Meffer today right after this. Stay with us. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty Health Share, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $199 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty Health Share is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more by calling 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561. Or visit libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Here's Dan Steiner, president of Preborn, with an important update.
1: The COVID-19 virus is having a terrible impact for the most vulnerable among us, the unborn. This past week, a woman shared she feared being pregnant with so much going on in the world. The abortionist gave her an RU-46 pill to terminate her pregnancy. Our Preborn Center was there for her, however, reversed the abortion pill and saved her baby. Our crisis line is flooded with women with similar stories.
0: Preborn Centers are the alternative to Planned Parenthood. And this May, through a challenge grant, Preborn will be able to send 100 to clinics if this goal is reached. And you can help. Call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. One ultrasound is just $28, but this challenge will double your efforts. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a pre-born banner to click at janetmefford.com. We are back on Janet Meffer today. It's great to have you with us and great to have with us Carl Tykrib. His new book is called Game of Gods, The Temple of Man in the Age of Reenchantment." We have seen a lot of New Age emphasis over the last several decades. But as Carl was saying before the break, we have seen them move from an emphasis on the self to now an emphasis on the collective. It's about we and the oneness that will bring us all together. You had mentioned in the book, Carl, which I think is such a, a great jumping off point to talk to people about what's going on here. When you went to the Global Citizenship 2000 Youth Congress, you talk in the book about that and what you observed there. And, of course, you you travel around a lot to these kinds of weird events and get a bird's eye view of what's going on. But what what were your observations about that event in the context of moving from the self-discussion to the we-oneness discussion?
2: You know, that was the very first event that I had ever attended that had an international I had an international emphasis, the entire thing was built around the idea of oneness, and so from, for myself that was i mean it was eye opening especially because the the event was geared towards creating a type of global citizenship education curriculum for Canadian schools hmm. and the importance of stressing global citizenship and and Today, I, I, you can see the fruits of that from our education system hmm. in fact, my home province of Manitoba. Uh, the grade twelve social studies program is all about global citizenship and being a good global citizen, and what it means to be an activist for global citizenship. You know, along those lines, um, where I really saw that emphasis on the "we" was as the the schools that were participating as they unpacked what this looked like to be a good global citizen. The the emphasis was on this 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 view of. Collective activism. Hmm. We are. We have to do this together. We have to become active together. We have to put down strategies. We have to, in the words of of one of the of one of the the, the uh, um, little roundtable groups I was a part of, and I bring this out in the book. We have to make this a virus. We have to infect everyone. No inoculation. Hmm. That that was the language that was said directly, and so. For me, it was like, wow, okay, this goes from, from the academic, this takes us out of the academic, because I've already did, I already did a lot of study before that 1997 event, I already had been reading up on the New Age and spending time going through documents and books and talking to people, but then when you, when you go to an event like that, it moves it from the academic to the practical. It moves it from the academic to the activist side, right. and you see that there are emotions involved. There is, there is anticipation. There is hope. There, there is a, a, a sense of purpose that is being derived through these events, and the kids and the educators. Because we had school children and educators, we had community activists, community leaders. They left supercharged. They were moving forward as social justice warriors. They were Mm. moving forward as global citizens united in this common cause of saving the earth and, therefore, saving humanity.
0: Oh, boy. Right. So it's, they recognize, of course, that you can't just have a bunch of people in robes with crystals hanging out forever. You have to move this into the general population. So, what better way to target the next generation than by targeting the kids? I mean, it, that's what they're doing, right? The global citizen stuff is being, you know, it's in schools here as well, not just Canada, but also in the U.S.
2: Oh, absolutely. And, and I trace that back into the, in my book through uh, the, the, a section I did. Uh, where I deal on Earth Day and, and how Earth Day sure. was, was implemented in 1970. And that really was, you could call, you know, the, 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 the spark that lit everything off in terms of, of, of the West's engrossed loyalty now to the Earth. That was that was where a, a whole generation was being targeted to be global citizens, yeah. and to think of themselves first as having an Earth
0: loyalty. Right, right. Well, and I think, for example, of the Mind Up program, I don't know if you're familiar with that, the, from the Goldie Hawn Foundation, and the emphasis on mindfulness in this curriculum. It's published by Scholastic, which is one of the major educational publishers in the United States, and they talk about being mindful and social-emotional learning, and all this kind of stuff. But this is basically Buddhism uh, wrapped up in some educational language. So they're getting the spirituality into the kids' minds, but they're not always honest about what they're really doing.
2: <laughs> That's right. That's right. In fact, I, I, I'm glad you brought up that, the, the Buddhist, Hindu, Eastern side of it, because that, that has had a, a major role in resetting uh, the Western mood setting the Western mood in such a way that we now are, are anticipating, we're eager, we, we are reaching and looking for those experiences, uh, those practices, those techniques that bring us into a, a sense or a feeling that we're connected. And I mean, yoga does that. That it was That is a, a very important aspect of Eastern practices. It it allows you to feel like you have just accomplished something spiritual. You've right. connected into something spiritual. Uh, it's taken your mind to a new place, and with it comes a new world view. Um, in one of the chapters, I talk about how I spent some time at the Lotus Temple, the the uh, Sri Raja Krishna, uh, Krishna Temple, just south of Salt Lake City. It's about a hundred miles south of Salt Lake City. I mean, right in the heart of Mormon countries. Yep. It's one of the most concentrated counties uh, with Mormons in Utah. And so right in the heart of this concentration is this Lotus Krishna Temple. And I spent time there. I talked to the guru. Uh, we, we, we were back and forth, going back and forth. And and basically he said, we are Hinduizing We are Hinduizing the West. Wow. And we're doing it through yoga, and we're doing it through things like the Hali, Hali, uh Color runs and color festivals, yes. and it struck me. I mean, we are becoming Hinduized or Easternized in spirit, though you know people aren't joining ashrams, they're not joining a a temple, they're not joining a, a spiritual Eastern community, but we are becoming Hinduized in spirit. We're accepting that worldview. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's and, rapid. Well, it is. When we talk about, you know, that Congress that you went to, some of these festivals that you've gone to, that's one part of it. You also talk, though, in the book about some of the big entities that are promoting oneness. You mentioned, of course, the Gorbachev Foundation USA and then the State of the World Forum, uh, the Esalen Institute, places like that. What are some of the big organizations that are on board with this oneness emphasis?
2: Oh, you know, the Esplan Institute has played a a foundational role in shifting the minds of the West to accept the oneness worldview. The Esplan Institute, for for those who may not have heard of it before, it's it's an entity. it's It's a retreat center that exists on the California coastline just south of San Francisco, and it was birthed in the early 1960s as the place, and it really is the place, that merged together Eastern philosophy, Eastern experiences, um, the Eastern worldview with the human potential psychology movement, and it really birthed the whole human potential movement that Mm -hmm. came out of Esalen. Esalon introduced uh, America to the eastern worldview. It also is a place where a lot of liberal theology began to emerge including liberal ideas of 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 sexuality and sexual and gender identity. Mm. All of that in many ways emerged out of out of Esalon's uh, retreats, their 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 uh, workshops, uh, the time that the people would spend in the pools and the saunas there at Esalon. Uh, it, it had a huge impact, a major impact. It really did change the West in many, many ways, and it still exists. It's still part of, of that uh, that network, that large, massive network that blossomed after the 1960s. What I found, and this is for me uh, one of the little surprises in writing the book, was the connection between Eselon and the Gorbachev Foundation, mm. Eslon and Mikhail Gorbachev himself. And the importance that uh, uh, Epsilon, the important place Epsilon had in bridging, being kind of a back channel between the Soviet Union and the United States in the 1980s, and how it really that was the point of contact between the East and the West, between the the Iron Curtain and what was happening behind the Iron Curtain. And America, and then, and then to spin off, before the, before the wall even fall, fell down, before the, the Iron Curtain collapsed, to be able to, to go into Moscow, to go into the Soviet Union, and to bring and help bring um, workshops and, and, and experiences on new spirituality, wow. and just how important Eslon was in helping to change the thinking of Moscow's elites. And uh, it played a, a, a phenomenally important role. In fact, uh, the, the, the individual, Jim Garrison, uh, who can, comes out of a Christian background, um, there's this whole back story there. Uh, he was Esselon's front man for their Soviet Union program. And then he ended up becoming the president of the Gorbachev Foundation. Interesting. So hmm. so many interesting connections, interesting ties. And uh, for myself, Janet, that was, that was a huge aha moment as I was doing the research and, and just probing deeper and deeper and deeper into what Esselon had been doing. Because not only had they, had they re- restructured our Western thinking, uh, they had informed the thinking of, of major players.
0: Yeah. Are they still involved heavily in this sort of thing? Are they still relevant? Have they died out oh, at all? Huge. Yeah. Yes.
2: Yes. In fact, Burning Man does their leadership in, has has been holding their leadership institutes and their retreat centers or their their leadership retreats at F.
3: Okay.
2: Oh yeah, it's still very very active. Ken Wilber, um, who who played such a such a big role in helping the emergent church kind of think about. About spirituality yes. and played a role with uh, with Brian McLaren. Uh, Ken Wilber recognized that the Esalon Institute has uh, has had just an enormous influence upon the changing face of of
0: America's spiritual culture goodness well that makes a whole lot of sense if you understand about the emergent church and this is something else I want to get into when we come back from this break the interfaith movement and the spiritual formation movement what does that have to do with this game of gods we'll come back with Carl Teichrib right after this We are back on Janet Meffer today. Glad to have you along and glad to have with us Carl Teichrib. He is editor of Forcing Change and author of Game of Gods, the Temple of Man in the Age of Reenchantment. You might have noticed that there is an emphasis today on oneness. And we saw that in the New Age movement of the 80s and 90s, as Carl has been outlining. But we're seeing it more and more across the board. Uh, Oprah helped with this. Carl, as I mentioned before, Eckhart Tolle, and you talk about that in the book, the fact that Oprah has been a huge spiritual Uh, influence, shall we say, in a bad way in popularizing this stuff. But let's talk a little bit about what you were saying before we went to the break, and that was you were mentioning some of these emergent names, Brian McLaren, for example, Ken Wilber, and talking about the Esalen Institute and its influence in this whole push toward oneness as if we could ever really have that. But what kind of effect has the oneness movement played on the interfaith movement and things like this mystical, spiritual formation movement that's found its way into so many churches. How have uh, Christians been affected by this oneness movement?
2: Well, first of all, oneness, uh, I need to quickly clarify this. Oneness is the, you could call it a dominant worldview that nobody really talks about. And, And what it says essentially is this, that man, God, and nature all share the same essence that man, God, and nature all have a commonality or a core, it's, and we are bridged all three all three natures together. Mm-hmm. Um, where Christians have, have played into this is, well, number one, the emergent church movement did have a role. It did have a role in, first of all, following the postmodern mood that said we don't really... We we are looking for answers, or, or you know, we have questions, but we don't really we don't really know um, if we can we can land on solid ground with solid answers. We're looking for for answers, but really we're more interested in questions more than anything else. Yeah. So, yeah. there was this this search for the experiential, this search for meaning and purpose in in how we we experiencing you know worship together or how we experience life. And, and the postmodern mood, what it, what it did was it stripped away uh, really anything that was meaningful. It, it, it became a, a mood that says we can question everything. But we really can't find answers. And that Hmm. really is a vacuum of
0: meaning. The conversation emphasis. Yeah, we get a ton of that today in evangelicalism. We don't have any answers. Let's just talk about the big questions. And I'm thinking, I thought Jesus was the answer. Did we forget so quickly that we do have the answer? (laughs) Yes. Yeah.
2: Yes. And so, you know, it, it, it leaves us with a vacuum. And we have to fill that vacuum with something. And society has filled it with re-enchantment, looking for the sense of mystery and wonder in the environment and the earth, uh, really in what we would consider to be a, 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 a pagan worldview. Right. And, and the Christian, the Christian community, um, I hate to say it, we follow culture. We follow the trends, not just follow to, to understand it, we follow to embrace it. Sure. And we have seen that across the board. We, we, we have Christian yoga, we have Christian Earth Day, we, have, we've, we Christianize everything that the world spiritualizes, yep. we Christianize it, yep. and we ther- therefore think somehow it's different or maybe it's better because we have a Christian language or a Christianese attached to it. Wrong, wrong, we are separate, we are different. There is a different uh, a, a different point of reference that we work with, and we have a different purpose and a different meaning. And we've confused that, and confused that greatly. But when it comes to the interfaith side, I mean, I, as we talked you know, a few, a few months back, I was at the Parliament of World Religions, and their oneness was constantly being reinforced, including by Christians who were attending, like Jim Wallace, those who claim to claim to say we are representatives of the christian community they were also hammering forward this idea of oneness oneness we're all there for oneness and at the two thousand and fifteen parliament I attended that as well in salt lake city brian mclaren was there he's one of our keynote speakers he was giving a talk on on climate change and in his talk he was he was expressing he wasn't really sure if he loved God because he loved nature and he loved the birds and the trees and everything, or he loved the birds and the trees and nature because he loved God. He wasn't sure which way it went. But he had this interesting interesting uh, part of his talk where he said that that the earth is groaning to us and the earth is singing to us and the earth is asking us, more or less, to give, uh, to give us a new story or to give the earth a new story. Mm. And that's what we're doing. We're building a new story. In other words, Janet, we're building a new myth. Yeah. We're building a myth, not a myth in in the sense of a fairy tale, not a myth in the sense of a fable, but a myth in a story that has a message of meaning and purpose. And the meaning and purpose being presented is we are all connected, we're all one, we're all part of each other, and we're all feeling this together. Mm. One of the questions that came up at the 2015 Parliament, I said in a workshop on, asking the question, are we all one? and and that was that was the 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 thrust of this workshop how do we find out we're all one and it boiled down to this we all feel we all have this feeling experience that connects us together and it doesn't matter if you are a, a a muslim sufi or a christian or a hindu or a buddhist we feel we have this sense of connection that we feel, and it is that feeling that binds us together and says, that, that is what demonstrates mm-hmm. we are all one.
0: Oh, well, that's working very well in the Middle East. I mean, you can see <laughs> that going on great. I mean, that's fantastic. Christians and Muslims in Africa, that's working great. The oneness thing is just fantastic. I, yeah. I
2: Good point. Good point. I mean, so your spirituality and your belief system, is now structured on what you feel? Are you kidding me? I have days where I feel absolutely like garbage. Yeah. And and for us as Christians, we have to recognize that Christ is the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And my faith in Him is not dependent on the feelings I have today. Right.
3: Right.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Well, at the root of this, Carl, what really is the premise, it seems, is we've got it all together, we just have to realize it. We don't have it together. We are one. We are one fallen, sinful human race, and we need a savior. This is very basic stuff, and the fact that Brian McLaren and those like him have to say, well, we need a news story because our old one didn't work proves that this guy is standing on shifting sand when he needs to be standing on the foundation of God's word.
2: Well, you know, and that's the one point I make. Out, I, I put out in the book: it, the idea of oneness itself, I think, is the illusion. The, the oneness, the advocates of oneness say, separatism, separateness. That's the illusion. My argument is the opposite. Yeah. No, oneness is the illusion. Right. We all live in a practical way where we understand and recognize distinctions, divisions. The very concepts of value come out of an understanding of what is different and distinct. It, it, you know, even the argument that the oneness are making—that we're working for a better tomorrow—because I heard that, I hear that so often—is completely bogus from a oneness perspective. In oneness, tomorrow doesn't really exist because hmm. it's all one. And hope? Why there is no hope? Because in order to have hope, you must recognize that there is distinctions and divisions, and that you are seeking a better position than a prior unwelcomed positioned. So the idea of hope and tomorrow essentially are non-existent in the oneness perspective. I'm sorry, there is no hope in oneness. Your cancer and your goodness are all the same. War and joy, pain and death, nothing really ultimately matters.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. Well, we know we, we can't even do anything about the hairs on our head. How in, right. the, how in the world are we going to bring about world peace? It's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, you, why are there fighting and, and wars among you? It's because of what's wrong with us. And that's right. what they don't want to look at.
2: Right. And, and we need to be able to communicate this into the culture around us. Because, yes. I mean, this yeah. is the reality we're living around with. I mean, this is the worldview that we are accepting without really understanding. Um, I have a friend who became a Christian through the writing of this book. It was instrumental in, in helping him to, to swing from his Buddhism and his Kabbalistic beliefs and some of the Native American spirituality that he'd embraced. And through the writing of this book, especially towards the ending of the writing of the book, I, he was reading sections of it. And we were talking, and he ended up becoming a Christian because of that, which wow. is absolutely incredible. And Carl, in mind, hang
0: on a moment. I want to hear more, but we do have to pause for a very short break. Carl Tykrib with us. Game of Gods is his book, and we'll return on Janet Meffer today. Janet Meffer today is proud to partner with Preborn to help save babies' lives. Well, my name is
1: Dan Steiner, and I'm the president of Preborn. Ultrasound truly is a game changer. When a mom comes into a pregnancy center under pressure to abort her child, perhaps the dad's gone, perhaps her mother is pressuring her, most of the time in her heart she doesn't want to abort, but what she needs is something that will give her the strength to choose life against the pressures that are forcing her to consider abortion. That's the ultrasound. If she hears her baby's heartbeat and sees that baby on ultrasound, everything's different.
0: Will you join us in saving babies' lives? Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, they choose life. Would you please join us at Janet Meffer today to support the Ministry of Preborn? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. A gift of $22 will provide one ultrasound, and every gift helps. To donate, please call now 855 402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at janetmefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. You can get involved and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Let's do more than talk about abortion. Let's save some lives. Please call now with your gift 855-402-BABY that's 855-402-BABY 855-402-2229 or there's a banner to click at janetmefford.com
2: you're listening to janet mefford today and now here's janet
0: welcome back to janet mefford today carl teichrib my guest Game of Gods is the name of his book, The Temple of Man in the Age of Reenchantment. And we're discussing the oneness movement. It's really throughout the world. It's all over the West now. A Hinduistic, uh, Buddhistic, if you want to use that word, Eastern mindset. Some refer to ancient paganism making a revival, and it certainly is. But it's all about this concept of oneness. We can become one with the divine, and everything will be fine. Everything will be wonderful. And this is diametrically opposed to what is actually true that God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We are sinners in need of a savior. God has provided that savior. And that's how we are reconciled to a holy God from whom we were estranged because of our sin. They are radically different messages, but we need to understand this age of reenchantment and how we are to respond to it. Carl, you were saying you have a friend who became a Christian during uh, the time that you were writing this book. And I think that's so neat. And I wanted to let you Finish that.
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, he he was uh, working through some of the material that I was wrestling with in the book, and, and reading sections of the book, and, and spending time just pursuing the argumentation that, that, that people like yourself are making, myself are making, that God is distinct, that He is uh, He is indeed other, He is different, and he ended up becoming uh, he came came to Christ to recognize that Christ is the is really the indisputable waymaker. And I just mentioned his story just briefly in the last chapter of my book. And I'll, you know, he has, first of all, what he, and this, is, this is important because sometimes we have to ask the question, how now do we use this information? How do we respond? Right. Well, this is how my friend responds. He has a shop. And uh, it's, a, just, it's, a, it's a little shop, and when visitors come into his shop, they end up talking about spirituality. And, of course, everybody has this you know, little smile on their face. Yes, we know what this is all about, spirituality. And, and my friend will say, hey, you know, I did a lot of studies in Buddhism, because he did. And then he says, well, allow me to read you a, a little passage. I'm going to read you the passage my friend reads. It is at this stage that we become free. Nothing disturbs us, and we act according to crazy wisdom. As a text says, we behave like a pig or a dog who has no dualistic considerations. Good, bad, clean, dirty. Everything is perceived as having one taste. Another text says that at this stage we become like a little child who does not know anything and will do anything, who is without any preferences or concepts of good or bad. So there is nothing to accept or reject. Hmm. Nothing can disturb us any longer. Everything arises in its own way and is liberated in its own way. If we do something, it is fine. If we do not do it, it is fine. There are no longer any rules to follow. And then when he's done that little section, as my friend says to me, he says, his client's eyes, they open with sudden realization, really? This is where this takes me? This is where oneness goes? <laughs> Everything is fine, nothing is fine. It doesn't matter if you do anything. It doesn't matter if you don't do anything. Good is bad, bad is good. Nothing really matters anymore. And (laughs) his client's eyes open right up and it gives him an opportunity then to uh, uh, basically allow the other person to recognize the folly of the worldview. And how else can a person's heart and mind begin to change unless we recognize that the, the, the problem doesn't fix itself.
0: Yeah, you really need to, as you emphasize in the book, Carl, it, there needs to be personal interaction with individual Christians, with other people who do not understand what we're talking about here. And I'm curious to ask you, though, where do these oneness proponents want to take the rest of us who aren't on board with their oneness? What's their plan? okay
2: i I wish i wish i had finished the book after i went to the parliament of world religions in 2019 because really the parliament of world religions this last time in toronto really emphasized that if you're not on board with us you are the enemy if you're not on board with us you need to be overcome if you're not on board you need to be silenced because we have a way forward we have a way forward and it is a way of salvation and that came out crystal clear, without any, any uh, murkiness to it whatsoever. We are offering a way forward, we are offering a way to salvation, you are standing in the way of salvation. Mm. And I don't bring that out in the book, that was one of those things that that cropped up after the book uh, was was published, one of those events, because I'm going to still keep going, Janet, I'm going to keep going to these things. Uh, How do you stay on top of it unless you're willing to step into their arena? And uh, that really, for me, that was like, okay, I've been to 35, 40 different internationalist events, or events of, of some global importance. And this is the first time where I'd heard the, the anger and the rhetoric ratchet up.
0: Yeah, high. And that's disturbing. Yeah, it's disturbing. But Christians need to know this. And and I think as we consider biblical prophecy in light of what's going on around us, we always need to be on the alert and to be understanding of the times in which we're living. And, And I like that you talk about we shouldn't just have a reaction to this. We should have a response to it as ambassadors for Jesus Christ in this world. What would you like to see the response be from more Christians? Because clearly you're on top of this all the time, but there are a lot of Christians out there who are not informed and maybe don't even know what to do because they don't even know enough about what's happening to do anything. But what would you like to see happen?
2: Well, first of all, become informed. But but, but become informed with the understanding that your role and your position is to be an ambassador. Well, what, well, what is an ambassador? We use the term loosely. Uh, I, I love Paul's language that he uses in Scripture when he talks about being a farm laborer. I can understand that. Or being a soldier. I can get that. Being uh, an athlete, he uses all these metaphors that we understand. Then he talks about being an ambassador for Christ. And we all nod our heads. Okay, that, that's cool. But what does that mean? Mm. Um, have you spent time in embassies? Have you spent time in the diplomatic community? Do you, do you understand the context of what it means to be an ambassador? Mm. Really understand that? Years ago, I was at an event where the U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia was describing his role and, and the work that it required for him to take on that position. And I, 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 I turned it around, and I placed it within the context of the Christian worldview, of the Christian, the Christian life, because we're called to be an ambassador. Well, he, he explained that as an ambassador, first, he is the legal and official represent, representative of his government. We, too, Janet, are the legal and official representatives of our king. Yes. That's huge. It is. Right there. That is absolutely massive. Second, he needs to represent his government's interests and even align his own personal interests to that of his government because he is operating in that capacity. Likewise, ourselves. We need to align our priorities with God's priorities, and we need to put his interests before our interests. That's what an ambassador does. And then third, an ambassador takes the time to know the culture, and he, he explained all this to us as, as a guy going to a completely foreign land. You need to look at where you're going, understand its culture, understand the context, understand how the people think, understand how the people work, so that you can be an effective messenger in that culture. Whether that culture is hostile to you or friendly to you is not the issue. It is, are you going to be a legal, official representative that gives an honest message to that culture. Good. And you need to know the culture well enough. In other words, you're, uh, for the Christian, you're, 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 you're in the world, but you are not of the world. Mm-hmm. And, and I think as Christians, we need to really break this down, what it means to be an ambassador for Christ, because we are now founding, finding ourselves in a foreign land right here at home And we now need to be ambassadors the way Paul was an ambassador at Mars Hill. Right.
0: Exactly. Exactly. We can't go native, in other words, because there's too much of that going on. I want to look at the culture, and then we end up becoming like it, and we end up with Christian yoga. That's not helping. No, it's not helping. (laughs) So my book,
2: Game of Gods, I'm hoping, is going to open up not just just that part of the conversation, but then allow people to see just how deep and how entrenched and Mm. how nuanced... Oneness is rec- across the board, including the political side of it, yes. including the religious, the philosophical. And
0: the cultural side right right there's so many aspects to it Carlin I think you just did a brilliant job of laying it all out it's really a comprehensive look at oneness and, and and all the little areas and the big areas where it's infiltrated and even into our own religious circles at times in the interfaith movement and some of these other uh, groups that you've talked about the emergent church and so forth but we have to be on the alert we do have an enemy we do have a time in which we're living where uh, the enemy is at work and and wanting to deceive us And we can't be deceived We absolutely have to stand On the foundation of God's word And I highly recommend to you Game of Gods Carl Tykrib, the author And it's just been so good Having you here Carl, thank you for schooling us And keeping us uh, informed On this important movement Because it is absolutely everywhere
2: Thank you, Janet, for the opportunity
0: Absolutely. Thanks a lot. Carl Teichrib, Game of Gods is the name of the book, and we appreciate your being here. Thanks for listening to Janet Meffer today, and we'll see you next time.